Good morning again. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, and if you're uh, using a pew Bible, you'll find our passage uh, on page 899. I'm just I'm going to read these verses, and this is one of four accounts of Palm Sunday. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Will you bow with me for a moment of prayer? God, we lift our time up to you today. Um, we thank you for um, the time of worship, of focusing on you, on what you have done for us. And we ask your spirit right now to meet us where we are, wherever we are on our journey with you. Give us understanding, for only you can do that. And uh, guard my words, guard our thoughts. And God, we offer this time up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, today is Palm Sunday. It begins an historic week that is called Holy Week, Passion Week. And this week, more than any other week in human history, forever changed the course of world civilization. That's not an understatement. Obviously, not everyone celebrates it the same way. Some give palms. I have never seen a donkey brought in a church. However, if you go to Bavaria next year, you will see that. In the 10 year, every, every 10 years, there is a celebration of the Passion Play uh, in Bavaria, Germany, uh, that goes on for a week. Maybe we should bring one through, as long as we clean up after it. But maybe we should bring one through because it might vividly remind us of at least two things. First, Palm Sunday is an historical event that happened some 1986 years ago, more or less, probably in around 33 AD. It is one of those few events that all four gospel writers, several of whom were eyewitnesses, were led to record and that has been depicted in the artworks throughout history. It was a day that began the week that forever changed human history more than any other event of antiquity. So that when we speak of following Jesus, we are not speaking of following a religion, which as our atheistic friends say correctly, is man-made. Religions have been invented by man and are his attempt to understand life and to reach God, whatever you conceive him to be, by our efforts to be decent and good, whatever we conceive that to be. Instead, we follow a living person, the creator God who intervened in history, who entered history and became one of us. That is not religion. That is what we believe is the reality of life and the meaning of life 
And if Jesus Christ is who he said he was, claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the Lord of the universe, one with the Father, all the different things he said, the only way, the truth, and the life, the bread of life, all the many things he said about himself, then, as Tim Keller would say, and I, like, and I love this phrase, we cannot respond to him mildly. There is no place for a mild response. Palm Sunday and Easter, most of the world knows about. Christendom, that's everybody who has called themselves a Christian for whatever reason, whether they really believe it or not, numbers minimally around 2 billion people on the earth. They all know about it, Easter, Palm Sunday, and such. But they remind us of this historical reality. It is not something we invented. That's important. Secondly, if we saw a donkey parading around our auditorium, it could vividly remind us that following Jesus is rarely what we would expect. Because we don't expect the donkey to come parading around. And one of the biggest contrasts of Holy Week is of the crowds following Jesus on Sunday, welcoming him as their king, and then five days later shouting, we want Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And I'm, every, when I hear of this, and we know this was talking about mob rule at times, and I'm reminded of the T-shirt that my nephew wore one time a number of years ago that simply said, never underestimate the power of stupid people in large groups. There was something mob going on at that time. No doubt, no doubt, there were true believers in the crowd that followed Jesus. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And the scriptures even say that's why they continued to follow him. And they saw other miracles and they believed in him. But others saw the same things and didn't believe. Or they followed for a while but did not continue with him. And one of the primary reasons for the rejection of Jesus, humanly speaking, is that he did not meet their expectations. He did not meet their expectations. And we all know here, my friends, that when we have expectations of certain things, of people, of situations, of our job, whatever it may be, when we have expectations, they can have powerful effects, especially when those expectations are not met. What were, some of, what were those expectations? The expectations then are rather easy to understand. They wanted King Jesus, their long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, to lead them in what we might call health, wealth, and prosperity. And it was understandable. They had been under the domination of foreign powers, four different empires, for more than 600 years with all the oppression, the humiliation, and the injustice associated with it. They wanted, as we would say, independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And here comes King Jesus, who feeds the multitudes, heals the sick, raises the dead, and no wonder, even before this time, they wanted to make him king, and Jesus had to withdraw from them. They also had biblical reasons to expect his kingdom of health, wealth, and prosperity. It was the hope of the Jewish people in the Old Testament if they followed God in obedience. So in Exodus, we read, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord 
who heals you. There's a book that came out years ago called None of These Diseases, based on that verse. If they obeyed him, though, from the heart. Big if. Proverbs says, if they honored the Lord with their wealth and the first fruits of their crops, it says, your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Well, Jesus was the son of David. And so Mark says in his account of, the, of Palm Sunday, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And the Old Testament prophecies of that kingdom were many. Do you remember the United Nations verse? They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. Leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion together. A little child will lead them. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. And significantly, Jerusalem was at the center of all this. And Jesus was entering Jerusalem unabashedly claiming to be the Messiah. Why the palm branches? Palm branches were presented to a triumphant victor. Jesus was a victor, and he is the victor, and we sang of that today. But not in the same way that they expected they wanted Jesus to make life work and to lead them in independence and to give them a prosperous future. There was only one problem. Jesus did not enter on a big white horse, ready to strike the Roman Empire with the rod of his mouth, slaying them with the breath of his lips, according to the Old Testament pictures that they were thinking of. He came on a donkey the lowliest of animals, in humility as the Prince of Peace and the suffering servant. And that was definitely not what they were expecting. What are our expectations now? What do we expect in following Jesus? What motivates us to commit our lives, ourselves, to him if we have done that or if we're considering that? Often, often it may not be much different than Israel. We expect God to make our life better than it is. To make our mates better, our kids better, our jobs better, our economic situation better, whatever needs improvement, we hope God can do that. And sometimes we come to him for that. And so, for instance, years ago, a track was used often to talk to people about Jesus that said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Has, how many people have seen that track? Okay. It comes from years ago. I think it's still used in some way. There's truth to that. There's truth to that. But can you imagine if the track went, God loves you and has a wonderful but difficult plan for your life. He will enter your life, bring his love, his forgiveness, his meaning, his healing to your soul, to your brokenness, and maybe even your body. He will also disrupt everything about your life, your goals, your values, and your direction. 
He will lead you into the wilderness as he did with Jesus. And little by little, through all the ups and downs of life, he will wean you from any dependence you have on yourself so you are more and more dependent on him. Why? Because the essence of sin, whether we know Jesus or not, wherever we are, the essence of sin that remains in us and that is in us, even with the Holy Spirit in us, if we know him, the essence of sin is acting independently of God, trying to make life work without him or getting him to do what you want. The extreme of that is what we often hear with the so-called health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Based on the Old Testament promises, by faith, you can claim God's blessing of healing, success, and prosperity. Millions follow this, and this is even exported to the nations, which you can imagine what they do with it when they export it to places like Africa, and those things don't happen. But it's done. And they would say, the best life on earth is with Jesus. And that's a true statement. But what form does that take? And we might say, we don't believe in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. However, what are the cultural values of the American dream of which we are its children? And that's a big question, my friends. But that's an important question for all of us. We want the gospel to transform every nook and cranny of our lives that we would reflect Jesus' love more and more in every situation. And every area of our lives has been affected by the values of our cultures, whether that be the American culture and the American dream, whether that be our ethnic cultures, and there are many different ethnic cultures represented here, whether that be our family culture, our legacy that's been handed down to us, and all that went into that to affect who we are, the way we think, and the values we hold. We're all affected by that. So for instance, my grandparents came to America over a century ago with hardly anything, all of my grandparents, with hardly anything in their pockets. Why did they come, as millions of other immigrants from Europe did at that time, because of the culture of can-do in America, the culture of determination. If it is broken, I can make it work. If I'm down, I can get up. I can do all things through American ingenuity and determination, which strengthens me. And there are good things in that. There are good things in that. There are many, so many opportunities here compared to the rest of the world. That's why we continue to have people who want to come here that we need to welcome. But as in any culture, there are negative features, not the least of which works against Jesus' truth, which says and which he said, without me, you can do nothing. And related to this is our culture of stuff because of the prosperity we have enjoyed. On a global scale, the vast majority of Americans on a global scale, keep that in mind, are upper middle income or high income. And many Americans classified as poor or below the poverty line on a global scale would be middle income. 
Inequality of distribution of wealth and goods are everywhere. And there are still one billion people around the world living on less than $1 a day. And that moves up to 3 billion people, 3 billion, almost half the world's population that lives on less than $2.50 a day. Whereas in America, new U.S. homes are 1,000 square feet larger today than they were in 1973. Why would that be when household size has shrunk to two and a half people per household? Don't ask me what the half person is. <laughs> two and a half piece, people per household. Why is that? Because we all have stuff. It's because stuff, and we all know the, the adage that the larger house that we get, whatever, the more stuff we will accumulate. In, his, in the book, Progress Paradox, based on parameters like healthcare, living space per person, mobility, Glenn Easterbrook concludes, we who live in middle-class America or Europe are living a lifestyle that is materially and comfort-wise better than 99% of all people who have ever lived in human history, but they feel worse. In fact, the subtitle of the book goes, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. Are Christians immune to this? Of course not. Are Christians immune to credit card debt? Of course not. Why? Because we're human. And often people desire and spend more than they can afford. Why am I speaking this way? Because this prosperity is wrong? Obviously not. The scriptures, like no other book in the world, the scriptures envision some people being wealthy and prosperous. And it tells them even, God has richly supplied us with what we have to enjoy. But it also tells us to be generous with it all and not to be proud, nor to fix our hope on our wealth, on our stuff. Andy Stanley speaks of greed as being the underlying matrix that holds our society together. That is our culture. That is our culture. The economic downturn 10 years ago did not happen for nothing. We are children of our culture, but not only. We come to Jesus with our culture. We come to Jesus in our culture. And at times, we expect that he can fix everything, make it work, and make it better in every area of life. He can help us, so to speak, achieve the American dream. But as Jesus changes us and our communities, he will inevitably address cultural issues. He changes the way we think and act so that we are more and more led by his spirit than simply by our culture or the way we do things. And my friends, that's why from this pulpit, that's why we speak about cultural issues which affect every area of life even the uncomfortable ones. Some of you have heard the story of R.G. Letourneau, who founded Letourneau University in Texas, uh, who was famous for having given away 90% of his income and keeping 10% the tithe for himself. 
Bill Peel, who is the director of the uh, Letourneau Center for Faith and Work, writes this. Letourneau was one of the more unlikely leaders of the 20th century, 20th century industry. From humble beginnings and a seventh grade education, he taught himself engineering and eventually built a manufacturing empire. His earth-moving machines helped win World War II and construct the highway infrastructure of modern America. By the end of his life, he held more than 300 patents. He had, he had also become one of the leading spokespersons in the lay-led faith and work movement. The decision to give away 90% of his personal income and stock in the company was the result of a previous decision made when he was 30 and deeply in debt to make God his business partner. Chastised by his missionary sister to get serious about serving God, Letourneau was confused. Like most people, he believed that sincere dedication to God required that he become a preacher, an evangelist, or a missionary. He attended a revival meeting at church and gave in. Thinking he was headed to the mission field, he sought guidance from his pastor. After praying together, his pastor said, you know, Brother Letourneau, God needs businessmen as well as preachers and ministries, you think? Letourneau responded, all right, if that's what God wants me to be, I'll try to be his businessman. Letourneau took his business partnership with God seriously, although he felt like God was getting, quote, a sorry specimen as a partner. When financial success came years later, he believed this made him a debtor to God as well as his fellow man. His commitment to give away so much of his wealth was not a flash of generosity as much as a logical progression from his earlier decision to make God his business partner. When people understand that their work matters to God and recognize that he is their business partner, Letourneau's perspective is a natural response. Quote, the question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I keep for myself. Famous quote by him. What would it mean if you recognize that God is your business partner, if he was your boss, if he was your colleague? What would he do with you? Letourneau went against prevailing culture. He went against the business culture, giving away 90% of your income and the stock in your company. He also went away prevailing church culture, where the missionaries and the evangelists and the pastors were up here and everyone else was below that. And the most spiritual way of serving God is one of those three ways. And he went against that. And at the same time he went against that, he made culture in some way that reflected who God was and who he was. And when we are led by God's spirit in every aspect of life, knowing his word and seeking his leading, we will eventually go against culture. And we will also create culture a culture that in some way reflects the God who lives in us. Remember, remember, whether we plan it or not, culture will happen. Why not create the culture we want? Now, I want to avoid a misunderstanding. When we entrust our lives to Jesus and follow him according to his word, 
He does do wonderful things in our life, lives. He brings healing to lives and relationships. He does put broken lives back together, not always as we expect. He doesn't necessarily change things as we desire. He does change our heart so it is not governed by greed, selfishness, or self-protection, and independent thinking. And my friends, that's a process. In fact, a felt need often brings people to realize that they need God in their lives. This is very normal. Practically all of us begin our journey toward God because we want something from him. Heaven for the future and help for the present. And there's nothing wrong with that. We can't stay there. If we stay with this posture, we approach God as a means to an end, getting God to serve us, making sure we have our ticket to heaven and experiencing his wonderful plan for our lives. Somehow, we need to transition and our experience and all that we do and all that we message and all that we talk about needs to transition from the posture of following Jesus for what we get from him to resting in his delight. He sings over us. He delights in us. He loves us. And resting in that, no matter what is happening in our lives, because his delight in us never changes. We need to get from that, from a posture of following him for what we get to resting in his delight no matter what and understanding why he entered our life in the first place. Why are we here? So that brings us to the question, what is the journey he has for us in following him? Why did he leave us here? First, it's a journey of loving the Prince of Peace. On that Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus presented himself in no uncertain terms as king, as the king of peace, humble, and mounted on a donkey, not the warrior king they expected. That will be the next time. But he came to die and rise again and to inaugurate his kingdom, his rule to begin the reversal of all the brokenness and all the sin that's around us and to restore shalom, to restore our wholeness, our peace that all of humanity longs for, my friends. Keep that in mind. That binds us all together. Wherever you are in your journey, we all long for wholeness. And we're all looking for it in some way. We all desire it. The scriptures put it in these terms, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, having made shalom through the blood of the cross. There is a reason the cross is central to human history with all history dated by his coming all over the world. The death of Christ, the blood of Christ, pays for the sin, the injustice, the evil, and all its effects that the whole world is trying to deal with. And the moment that we get upset, and rightly so, about the injustice that's all out there in different ways. We recognize that the injustice begins here inside. 
And Jesus is the answer to that, to our injustice, and he's the answer to the injustice in the world, to the problem of evil, to the problem of suffering that will never be fully satisfied in this life, but will eventually one day. But we're working with that now. And those who believe in Jesus have tasted that shalom. And his love and that taste bring us to present our lives to him to give back what belongs to him. Here am I. Do with me, Lord, what you want. And I remember the day very clearly when I was 17 years old. I grew up in a faith family. I don't know of a time when I didn't believe in Jesus. But I remember a time when I went to a freshman orientation picnic when I was 17, and I entered the picnic, and it was a Christian college, and I entered the picnic, and the first thing that it came as I walked, as I got off the bus and walked, and I saw this guy playing a guitar, and I played guitar too, and I, I enjoyed music, whatever, and so I asked him, is that your guitar? And he says, no, it's the Lord's. And the thing was, he wasn't being super spiritual. He truly believed that. And all the rest of the day, all the rest of the day, I hear these people giving testimonies as where God is real. And he's entered my life, and he's doing things in my life, and they were telling their stories. And all I remember is I got on the bus, I'll never forget, I got on the bus, and I was sitting there, and it was almost before anybody else got on the bus, and I said, God, I don't know what this is about. I don't get it all, but here I am. Do with me what you want, because I want to know that real, living relationship with the resurrected Jesus. And that's kind of a natural reaction when we have experienced the delight of God, the delight of Jesus, the expressions of his love towards us by dying for us, rising from the dead, and singing over us. It's also a journey of loving others through our vocations. And vocations is a fancy word for callings, and we all have them. So picture this. Just as Jesus, just as Jesus enters Jerusalem in humility on a donkey to serve, eventually washing the feet of his followers later on that week, and then to give his life for others so that they have life, so also we enter our home, our workplace, our church, and all of our social networks that represent the hundreds and hundreds of people represented in this room. All the spaces of our callings, we enter them as ambassadors of this king, his vice regents. And you know what that word means? It means proxy. Proxies of the king of kings. And we enter it as priests of our high priest. We stand between God and those in our network. We represent them to God in prayer and represent God to them in loving them. And in it all, we are the voice of the great prophet Jesus because Jesus came as prophet, as priest, and as king. And you know what? We're all connected. If we know Jesus, we're all connected to him in that way. We are his proxies, his vice regent of the king of creation, his priest, 
and his voice. That's who we are. What does that look like? Well, it could be reading to your children or grandchildren to invest in their lives. There's nothing more delightful. Or stewarding your, stewarding your trade or profession to express Jesus' love and justice to your neighbors in those jobs. And you'll notice the water cooler there because that may be where your conversations of learning about other people, that may be where they happen. Or it may be coaching a ball team like Jesus would coach. Or investing in the little ones in children's church. Or a thousand other ways of your vocations. That's how Jesus accomplishes his work in the world as we journey and follow him in humility through our vocations, all of us. And lastly, it means it's a journey of being sent near and far. At the beginning of his ministry to his first disciples, Jesus said these famous words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Then his last words to his disciples are, in your going, make disciples of all nations. Our journey with Jesus will somehow involve us in his travels, near and far. And 40, 40 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus is referred to as being sent. And then he tells us, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So go and compare ourselves with all the different ways Jesus was sent. You go, Jesus says, as I have been sent. Bring me and my loving service to those who don't know me. So Jesus sends his community, his followers, as the Father sent him. Following Jesus on a donkey is a journey in humility. Being loved by him who delights in us loving him back supremely as the Lord of history and our ultimate friend and partnering with him to bring his transformation through the gospel to our world where we live at the same time he transforms us because he does it all together. And the question I leave with you is, where are you today on your journey of following Jesus? Will you bow with me in prayer? as the worship team comes up. And my friends, if you sense that God is moving some way in you to go forward in your journey, to make that statement, here I am, Lord, do with me what you want, or to understand more, whatever it may be, do not ignore that prompting of God in your heart. And come and speak to the prayer team who may be up front here or one of the elders or, or someone, anyone that you may even know and respect and would like to share that with. But don't let it be. We are all on a journey. And God is pursuing us here. And God, I want to pray that um, you see the hearts of everyone here Will you continue to do your work as you are speaking to us through your word, through your spirit that is present here? 
Will you speak to us, God? And will you continue to do your work right here as we just meditate and as we sing? We pray in Jesus' name.